This is the Personal Finance Show. Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Did you know that Canada has a financial literacy leader? It's true. Jane Rooney was appointed Canada's financial literacy leader in 2014 within the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, or the FCAC. Yes, there is a government official whose main job is to make sure Canadians are financially literate. Jane is awesome, and she's joining me in the second half of this episode. But first, let's talk about the only reason I even know Jane exists, and that's because of the Conference Board of Canada. Earlier this week, February 21st and 22nd, 2018, they hosted a conference called Financial Wellness and Retirement Readiness. While preparing for the conference, I found out the FCAC was a sponsor, and they offered me an interview with Jane Rooney. From the Conference Board, I was offered an interview with their Vice President of Industry Strategy and Public Policy, Louis Thériault. Louis gave a great presentation about the current state of financial wellness in the workplace. After the presentation, I sat down with Louis and asked him how he got into this world of economic and policy analysis. Becoming an economist was the path of least resistance mm -hmm. because it, I like numbers. So, you, yeah, so, so you, I was just looking for things to add up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's always been an interest of mine and, yeah, and through work over time and more recently with the financial wellness theme as a research theme. Uh, we started to add that to a whole series of research uh, projects around wellness in the workplace. Was it always money or was it just numbers? Was it just uh, or like trends, graphs and stuff like that? What started just like that, just to, to show something, show mm -hmm. a trend and explain what's going on and trying to find reasons why. And, and over time, the financial dimension of things, like I've always looked at money as a, as a mean. So okay. to me, I, can, I know what's enough, and it's always been really, really clear. But getting to that what's enough money for who I am yes. uh, has been like the, uh, what has been underpinning my, my, my discussions with my wife, with my daughter, in fact, how I define my careers. Because so, it's, it's different for everyone. You were saying this earlier, the definition of what is financial wellness, it's, it's such an individual thing. And personal finance is personal. We say these things all the time. Is it the way that you grew up? Does that impact this? Like, do you feel like, how did you get your financial wellness sense? Well, I guess that's a really good question. Uh, and now I've never reflected on that specifically uh, in this kind of context, but uh, my parents are one of psychologists. The other one is a French uh, literature okay, yeah. prof. So, so bad with money? No. Yes. <laughs> yes I guess okay. that's exactly that. Money has been like whatever. Like yeah. Good job. They're focusing on their arts, yeah. right? They're focusing on what they know, their skills. Yeah. And they're not financial professionals. Not at all. In fact, they couldn't care less about money. So they were just knowing they had enough. Yes. Not knowing exactly what that enough really meant. Uh, so they were ending up being short 
Mm -hmm. Oh, so they, they never focused on... Okay, so that's interesting. They never focused on what was enough because maybe they had enough to live while they were working, but then it didn't work out you know, when they retired or when they couldn't work anymore. Is that what well, you're saying? It, it kind of balanced that over time, but it's always been like on a... Right on, on the line. Right on the line. Okay, like yeah. me as a teenager, young adult, and uh, needing, needing a bit of help here and there, like mm -hmm. not having it. Um, and just hearing that, oh, well, there's no flexibility in our personal finance. Like, I can't really, you're going to have to figure it out on your, on your own, how to pay for this, okay. or how to do this or that. So, um, so, well, you know what? I don't want to live a life like that where I never know where actually where I am. Yeah. And I don't want to live a life where I don't have any wiggle room. So that's good that, that you, started you knew from that. the get go yeah. because I, it, things worked out with my parents, but they, the wiggle room didn't exist, which mm -hmm. I found annoying. <laughs> and I think people take, uh, especially when growing up, I think they take the wiggle room for granted, right? That, oh, uh, oh I want to go on a trip or, I, you know, can I take that exchange program? And so some people would love to go do that in high school. And then maybe they find out, oh, we can't afford this. And then I guess you get that realization that, hmm, you know, not everyone's financial situation is the same. But we don't talk about it, right? There's, we don't. We were talking about stigma earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And there's still so much stigma around this. And uh, so, I mean, today, uh, the conference that we're at here is, uh, it's really about, you know, most Canadians are either working for someone or working for themselves. So this topic is relevant to just about everybody. Either they're, they're the employer or they're the employee or they're their own employee. Either way, uh, wellness in the workplace is a common topic for everyone, if you work at all. And so today we were talking about, uh, you know, how uh, financial wellness is subjective, which we just mentioned. And I wanted to address the idea of, um, and we, we hear about absenteeism, you know, so someone's not stressed out, either financially or, or just generally, and then they miss work. But uh, can you uh, talk about presenteeism and what, what that actually means? Yeah, it's being at work, but not actually doing your work. And what are they doing instead? So if you're stressed by your personal finance, for example, something that came up during our conversations today, mm -hmm. you'll spend time looking at the stock market. You'll spend yeah. time talking to your wife around, oh, how will we make ends meet? Okay, yeah. Or you'll talk to your children about, uh, well, how are we going to deal with that financial situation because we don't have that wiggle room, for example. Mm -hmm. So you spend time at work doing other things than working. You're physically and, present. And you're physically present, but the financial stressor that is important is one of those the important stressors out there that eventually triggers anxiety and other, maybe depression in certain cases. So we have a, a cascading series of, of events, and it, it's different degrees. It's not, it's not a constant on-off switch, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a, a continuum, a spectrum of, of degrees of presenteeism or... or, or distractions that will prevent you from being fully productive and fully present in your work and totally dedicated to your work. So that, that's the presenteeism concept is from that. So, of course, financial stress is part of what causes it, but mental health, more broadly defined, yeah, physical health. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's one of the tension in a service economy where a lot of people sit behind their desk all day long. They work behind a computer. Um, we're not in a, an economy where you produce widgets. 
yeah. anymore. So, so they're not, not so being, much, so. yeah. So with knowledge work, as you're saying, it, it, you're not being productive at all. At least maybe if somebody was stressed out on an assembly line, they could still Produce get the, the products widgets, through, yeah. and and their their mental state, uh, they might not be very happy doing it, but it would get done. And it's complete opposite. The productivity just drops when you're you're into knowledge work because maybe you're doing something, but it it's not good. You're doing the bare minimum or whatever you need to do for the day. So is the idea that companies are recognizing this. You're talking about it today. Everyone's providing more uh, proof that this is real and they're taking it seriously. Yes. Well, in fact, the whole theme of wellness in the workplace in the context of labor force aging, some some labor shortages in many industries. Mm. So uh, making sure that the employees you have are treated well, number one. But number two, when there's some programs the employers can implement to help employees be more productive in the workplace is becoming a central theme. So it's physical, it's mental, and the financial component of wellness in the workplace is starting to emerge as a theme that employers need to pay attention to because of, of the level of uh, stress this creates. It's a psychological stress. Mm -hmm. There's many others uh, that people and individuals have to deal with, but the financial stress is one that is of particular importance. So that's hence the, the, event, the event today, hence the, uh, some of the research that's starting to, to be produced on that theme, which is new. We're, we're really pioneers in that, mm. in that sphere of financial wellness. I well, what, so what angle uh, are the employers implementing to be able to either, I guess, prevent or address? So is, pre is prevention more of the focus? There's a well. It's part of it. I would say that prevention, and also dealing, recognizing signs that something's off, mm -hmm. and dealing yes. with that before it gets too bad or deteriorates. So it's a whole notion of spectrum. So if so some, it's a dial more than a switch. Yes, yes. So if you if you notice, or if the employee feels, or if you're an employee and you are like having some financial troubles. And you need to talk to somebody, but you don't know where to go, so you're just kind of keeping it to yourself. Uh, if the if your employer had a resource for you to go to or somebody to talk to, and now there's of course there's employee assistance lines and stuff like that and programs. But if there were resources like a website to go just to read more about financial stuff and how do I get out of this, if you just felt more comfortable, then you could address it at the beginning before it sort of yeah. explodes, right? Yeah, and it's tied to mental. I think I, the, the whole yes. issue of mental wellness yes. is directly tied to that. I would say it's the same theme, okay. really. Like it, it, and and some, of the, some of the work done in the last few years on, around mental health and destigmatized mental health mm -hmm. applies totally to, to, to the situation around financial wellness and, and the trigger around, um, around anxiety down the road and things that are, will eventually make you really sick. Yeah, so I mean, effectively I, sick. Yes. So recognizing the signs and so the, the programs, the effectiveness of programs to deal with mental health in the workplace in terms of training supervisors, training employees, having internal resources, mm -hmm. customizing because it's different by age group, For by everybody. industry. Uh, so you have to, you, there's no one size fits all to this. So the internal resource uh, dedicated to recognizing signs, socializing this, working on the culture in the workplace, so it becomes acceptable to talk about these things. So th that's all part of it. And, and then the measuring the outcome, mm -hmm. whether or not we're doing the right thing, is where we are at now. Like okay. it's, there's a lot of things that are proposed, not much measuring in terms of impact so far. 
Yeah, because what what you said about how it's being all connected. Uh, you know, I always like to say that you know money problems usually have nothing to do with money. The money is the result. You know, in my specific case, you know, the the mental health issue and attention deficit disorder causes the coping mechanism of addiction, which, of course, since it was a gambling addiction, uh, the financial impact was severe and and quicker than, say, if you were buying cigarettes every day uh, to cope, uh, which is costly over the long run, but it's not going to break your bank, uh, you know, in a day or a month. You know, in my situation, uh, yeah, any of the resources that would have been available, and, and, they, and they were to me. I mean, I, I went to CAMH, and, and so I guess in an employee situation where if you were at work and, and you just didn't know, if somebody at least said, hey, you know, uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, if you have a, a gambling problem, here's, you know, here's a resource, and you think, maybe I do have a gambling problem. Oh, you know, and then you feel like your workplace supports that, right? And, and, and but you're right, it's all connected. And, and uh, I'm just uh, looking at 11.3 days uh, lost per person per year due to financial wellness stress. If you have it, yeah. If, yeah. if, if, if financial stress is important, then it can lead to up to 11 days. And that's the early research in the States. That's yeah. back to, I think, some of the hard evidence we need to start working on to raise the profile of the issue of financial stress and the consequences on financial wellness and mental health. Um, this is the early evidence around that. So we need to do more on that front, but it's just early indication that this is serious. But to your point, it's both ways. In your case, your example was mm-hmm. it started with a uh, your mental wellness yes. that was uh, you, had, you had ADHD, so yes. there was something to deal with that triggered financial, triggered financial problem. But, but it goes the other ways. way too. It's the other way. So People have anxiety ways. from the fact that uh, yeah. maybe the, uh, something happened in their life, an emergency that they can pay for, so now they're in debt, and it's causing them anxiety that that other way. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like are people overconfident about their ability to manage their money? Is that the is that the result? There's a big question mark for me when we talk about money and the relationship that people have with money mm-hmm. in our society. I think there's a whole much bigger conversation around social norms, what's acceptable in terms of uh, being transparent about money and your mm-hmm. personal finance. Uh, something about salaries, like uh, today we talked about uh, hiding or not making salaries public, yeah. allowing some employers to pay less for equivalent occupations when it's women taking over the job. So these kind of things. So there's a relationship to money in our society that needs to be recalibrated, I would argue. I think so. Uh, because money should be talked about like any other tool. Yeah, you, you have and, a very practical approach to that. Yeah, so I there's something. It's personally strange for me to relate to that, but mm-hmm. I see it. Mm, and, I, and I've seen it in friends that are economists, professionals, making good money and being like loaded on credit cards with 20% interest and not dealing with that mm-hmm. and, and talking to them about common sense, how to do this. And they would still not do it until they, was, they were reaching the tipping point. Maybe because they're too far gone by the time they have the conversation or they just have such pride yeah, there's there's a lot of yes, I, uh, a lot of that, eh? I I guess if you let it accumulate over time, it gets harder to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, there's a certain degree of denial uh, also. It seems that okay, well, money is just uh, something that's supposed to serve me. So as long as I have enough, it's yeah, okay. I'll and, keep making it. Yeah, and, but it creeps on you, like yeah, oh, really you're making that purchase, you're making that family decision. If it turns out your partner is not 
really uh, well acquainted numbers and not really comfortable with numbers. One of the two partners is dealing with financial matters. It can go south pretty quickly if that person in charge of the financial matters is not really on top of its game. That's a good point. You should be aligned if you're sharing finances with somebody. Just have that conversation at the beginning, right? So if somebody you know, wanted to, there, there's, a, there's a lot of good stuff uh, everybody's talking about today in terms of implementing programs in work and having like wellness fairs and things like that. So it's, say you're in a company, you work for somebody, and uh, there's really nothing going on. Where do they go uh, or who do they talk to to, to find, uh, to get this started, to find the resources for financial wellness or just overall mental health and, and uh, addiction wellness? It turns out that the um, insurers, mm. if you go on the for web, benefits. Yeah. for benefits, but insurers have, have over the last, I would say t- about 10 years, the whole notion of wellness mm-hmm has become a central theme for them okay. for different reasons. Like it's a win. I call that the triple win. Yeah. There's a win for the employee for doing the right thing in terms of wellness, physical, mental, mm-hmm. financial. There's a, there's a, a win for the, um, for the employer because the employer gets uh, um, better, better productivity. Yeah, they, don't, they, don't, the they lose that presenteeism. Yeah, and we've done a lot of ROI calculations in terms of Every dollar spent on wellness and prevention comes back in, in spades. So you can of, justify this yeah, to the executives, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, for financial, it's a little tougher. For health and mental health, it's easier. But we're getting uh, that data we're soon. Get, yeah, yeah, we're getting that data. And then the third win is, um, is of course, for the, for, for, the, uh, for the insurers themselves, the providers of these services, because it's the financial sustainability of their clients they want to. So it's, it plays, and I would say there's a quadruple uh, win that case, because society as a whole. Mm-hmm. gains from, from that. So it's really virtuous to, 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 to deal with this. And so insurers have taken a leadership role in this, which is good, which is fantastic. That's and good. Then, uh, yeah. and, there's, and there's many provincial and federal programs as well that, that people can tap into. So there's, it's becoming much more uh, acceptable and socialized. It's not just about the bottom line anymore. I mean, the, they see the effect on the bottom line, but the good news is we have studies that show that, that there's a positive effect on, on cash for them, but also on people and, as you said, society. So you're right. It's a quadruple win for everybody, and I think this is great that this conference is happening. So This theme needs to live. I think it so, needs to live. Yeah, we're, right. we're pioneers in that sphere, and I think Sun Life and Manulife has shown uh, a lot of leadership on this. I think we're moving beyond like the practical tools and approaches that are more tactical mm-hmm. and something that's coming closer to a strategy that, yeah, that's, that's good. more integrated. So all the activities to support uh, well-being uh, becomes more integrated around that, that, that strategy where all, all the parts start connecting and making sense to deliver the best result for, for people. Amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So as Louis said, there's a quadruple gain with financial wellness programs. The employee gets financial information and support to get out of financial trouble or to prevent them from getting into it in the first place. The employer benefits from less downtime and more productivity. The insurers save money when overall health is improved. And overall wellness is good for society as a whole. So companies are making positive changes. What about the government? When I started researching Jane Rooney for this interview, I was totally surprised by the commitment the government has made to strengthen the financial literacy of Canadians. 
Here's Jane to tell us about her path to becoming Canada's financial literacy leader. I'm happy to share information about how uh, how I learned financial literacy growing up because I'm actually really proud. Um, my parents were my role models. Frankly, my, my parents continue to be role models for me because uh, they really instilled in, in all kids in my family, there are four of us, that we needed to earn money to be able to spend money. So they encouraged us all to, to get part-time jobs when we were of age. And uh, we all were able to pay for our own education and, and support around our post-secondary education as a result. So I'm proud because my parents talked a lot about the importance of saving before spending. They didn't use credit and I know that that was a different time. Well, that's interesting. You know, I grew up, right? Not at all. They didn't use credit when we were kids. My dad gave my mom who was a stay-at-home mom when we were kids, he gave her a set amount for for groceries, so in cash she'd have an envelope and that was the the money for the week for groceries. Wow, that's such so a we really such a contrast. Stuck to our budget. <laughs> yeah. To, to what, what people are, yeah, what people are like today. Sure. So yeah, growing up, of course, my parents, great role models. So I learned a lot about money. I wouldn't say I learned everything about money at home. My parents just acted as great role models. I wouldn't say we talked a lot about money, but we were aware that we had set budget for groceries, for example. We were encouraged and my parents, my mom brought me to a bank when I was 12 years old. I was babysitting, so I had some money. So she helped me open up my first bank account. My dad helped me, you know, he loaned me some money for my first vehicle. So it was a, a way to borrow and learn how to pay down debt at very low cost, of course, because the loan was from my father. So they tell so you through think, actions yeah. rather than, you know, actually just sitting down and, and talking about the topics. They just helped you to accomplish certain things. Yeah, we learned by doing. And my parents continue to be great role models. My, you know, my parents are are in their 80s. Uh, My father's 85. My mom's just turning 80. And, you know, they have a solid retirement. Uh, They had a plan for their retirement, even though, um, you know, times are fairly difficult living on on low income because that's the the area they're in. My mom has some health issues. So, you know, paying for health care for for those kinds of things in your older age, it's really important to have uh, planned that out in your savings plan throughout your life. And they did that. So they're able to pay for medication. They're able to pay for their lifestyle, which is their great role models in my mind. That's really good because I was just thinking as you were saying that you put together this, well, I, I was on the website, this huge uh, financial literacy plan for Canada. And when you were going through the seniors bit, were your parents like top of mind through, throughout? I would say for sure my parents, but but even more broadly, like I, I'm very aware of, of our population is aging in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. We have more more seniors now than kids under the age of 15. So true? top wow. of mind for us, yeah, top of mind for me in the in the early days of being in the role of financial literacy leader was what are the types of audiences that are out there and seniors and people nearing their retirement years, for example, was a key population for us. Growing population, we know people in their senior years are carrying more debt now than ever before. So I really wanted to have a better sense of what the needs were, what were their, what's out there for a senior's population so that we could help address some of them. So an early milestone was actually 
actually a strategy for helping strengthen financial literacy of seniors and near seniors here in Canada. But of course, we, we broaden that uh, beyond uh, the seniors and near seniors and did more consultations on really vulnerable populations that we saw in, in survey results, you know, broadened to Indigenous peoples, low-income people, uh, newcomers to Canada, and people with disabilities. And then we did like a final phase of consultations, adults and youth more broadly, because uh, again, you have to think about the whole spectrum of the population from our young people right through to the seniors uh, population. And I learned so much in that consultation phase. And that resulted in, as you described, the national strategy for financial literacy here in Canada we launched in 2015. So this was 2014, you toured around Canada uh, talking to various uh, uh, groups? Yeah, we did um, a massive uh, set of, of consultations. So we issued three papers from FCAC for comment and ran across the country, frankly, meeting with organizations and seniors directly in the first phase, with organizations working with different vulnerable populations in the second phase, and then more broadly, uh, organizations that that uh, had a youth focus and really workplace um, was, came into play for adults. So yeah, we, we learned a lot in that first year. The other thing we did in 2014 was a massive financial capability survey. So we surveyed um, over 6,000 adults, uh, 18 to you know, into the seniors years to better identify what were the financial literacy needs of individuals. You know, some of the questions are around, uh, do you have a budget? Um, how many bank accounts do you have? So getting to, to the idea, are people shopping around for products and services? What's the scope of the products and services that they have? Did they have multiple credit cards, that kind of thing? We asked about even government benefits like uh, RESPs, the Registered Education Savings Plan, and whether or not people were saving for their kids' education whether people were aware of the Canada Learning Bond, for example, for low-income people, you know, government supports for helping your kids pay for a post-secondary. So fabulous, a fabulous learning experience for me, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Everybody can go on the website and, and read this whole plan, right? I'll put the links in the, this is very detailed stuff I was looking through and and even the FCAC's mandate is what it was, 11 objectives or something like that. Uh, and there's like, there's so much documentation for each part of this, right? Yeah, we have great information on Canada.ca slash money. Um, the strategies described there, you know, the consultation work that we undertook was there, but also there's a vast array of information just to help people understand better money information. So how to manage your debt, how to how to pay down credit card debt. We have interactive tools like a, a budget calculator. We have uh, mortgage calculators, you know, top of mind for many people right now. We have a, a financial literacy database that can combines information from not only FCAC, uh, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, but other organizations that have tools and, and resources to help people better understand things like budgeting, money management, insurance, savings, investing, that kind of thing. So you had really great parents from a financial standpoint. They kind of gave you some guidance as you went along. Why doesn't everybody do this? And why do you think that everyone is, you know, a lot of people are actually just afraid of, to talk about money. You know, you said your parents didn't talk about it directly, but they, they kind of guided you. But a lot of people are just, they just don't know what to do. And, and why do you think that is, you know, in simplistic terms, I guess? I think people think money is complicated. There are lots of financial products and services out there. So it's a fairly complex financial marketplace, first of all. 
money has been a taboo subject. A lot of people aren't comfortable talking about money. And frankly, a lot of people think, uh, find it scary. Why do you think, like, other than the complexity of products, I mean, it's not, it's not that complicated, though, to, uh, you know, spend less than you make uh, that, you know, the basics, right? Why is, yeah. why did that become such a taboo thing? Do you have any insight on that? You know, I think that from what I've learned from the organizations that I've met with over the past uh, almost four years in this job, mm-hmm. they've, People are telling me that people are scared about money because it's um, it's a very personal and emotional topic, it is. first of all. So it's a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to make it, uh, make sure that the person trusts you to have a conversation. Um, and that's why, you know, there are lots of organizations, including FCAC, that develops content and tools to help people, sh- you know, understand it online. For example, you can do your work online, better understand products and services have a sense of what kinds of questions you might want to ask of a financial professional and then sort of gain a little bit more confidence, you know, to go into, say, a financial institution to open up account an account or, or explore another financial product like getting a credit card, for example. So it's emotional. It's a, a very personal thing. And people need to, to feel trust in a relationship before they're, they're com- comfortable talking about it. It's part of the uh, FCAC's job to oversee banks in one, in one way or another. Is that correct? Yeah, we're we're the bank uh, consumer protection regulator, and we oversee the federal financial institutions like banks. And okay. it's really the consumer protection uh, provisions like, you know, if you have a credit card, we oversee disclosure of the interest rate so that they have to tell you what's your interest rate. How is interest calculated? If you have a bank account, uh, we oversee that the bank tells you uh, any fees or anything, as, uh, costs associated with that bank account. Um, the fact that you can open the bank account is also legislation we oversee. Every Canadian has the right to open up a bank account with the proper ID. So uh, so it's FCAC that enforces those consumer provisions. You probably run into or have in, in the last uh, couple of years uh, situations where uh, banks are trying to uh, sell products or recommend products that aren't necessarily in the best uh, interest of consumers. Would would you have any examples of that? And maybe if they've had to correct it or. Well, interestingly enough, we're actually in the field right now with a, a massive bank sales practices review. Mm. You may be aware that that last year uh, a go public information was released that some of the financial institutions. Um, employees were saying that there were some challenges. So FCAC launched uh, a massive undertaking, uh, a bank sales review practice, and actually we'll be releasing that uh, that report in the next couple of months. Okay. So more to come on what the sales practices review looked like, what we found. Any of the um, the actual investigations that might have been uncovered through this sales practices review kind of goes through this other phase, which is our investigators, our compliance officers actually do an investigation. And if there's a, a violation of a law, then that will be a you know a separate stream where the commissioner can actually uh, we have a commissioner that's the head of our organization, Lucy Tedesco, mm. and if. She, agrees with uh, with the findings, she can actually put a bank in violation of those acts. So more to come on that. But we have a call center um, and we accept, um, 
you know, calls from consumers who feel that they haven't had their, their rights adhered to. So if they think that there's something wrong, they're more than welcome to call FCAC and, uh, and talk to us about their issues. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put that information in the show notes as well. Uh, in terms of how, if you have, you know, if there's online ways or phone numbers uh, to call, it's, it's actually kind of, uh, it's, it's a nice comfort to know that when the, you know, banks are, I guess, behaving badly, if you will, uh, you guys are just ready to, to investigate. That's right. You know, there's a, there's a regulator in place at the federal level, you mm-hmm. know, we, we're responsible for that. So we really need to know from consumers what's happening on the ground. But we also do our own proactive uh, investigations, of course. But yeah, it's great for consumers to, if you have any questions at all, you know, just come and ask the FCAC. We're, we're here. <laughs> so the FCAC, in so many words, is, is looking out for Canadian consumers. Uh, That's you know, right. In all aspects that you can you could probably think of, and, and they're all detailed on the website. So you uh, you went to university, I think Carleton, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did economics at Carleton. So economics, and then you went into the financial industry. Actually, when I first uh, graduated from university, government wasn't hiring, and uh, I found a really interesting. I worked uh, for members of parliament for a number of years, okay. doing you know, uh, helping consumers out, really navigating some of their issues. So that was fascinating to learn about. Uh, um, government from a different perspective and helping people maneuver through the the different uh, challenges. I loved, you know, helping people. And so that that was a really rewarding position. But I came across an organization called the Canadian Payments Association. There was an ad in the newspaper. That's not how you find jobs anymore. But that's how you did <laughs> in, in the early 90s, right? Yep. Um, and applied for a position with the Canadian Payments Association. And that's an organization that writes rules for moving money and settling, clearing and settling money between different financial institutions. So, okay. you know, so I worked there for um, almost eight years and uh, helped develop rules around direct deposit, pre-authorized debit, bill payments. So really it's the rules for the banks, but in those rules, there were some consumer uh, protection. If a pre-authorized debit comes through your account at, that you didn't authorize, there are things that you can do to um, to get your money back. And so those are the types of rules and things that I did at, at the CPA for that seven and a half years. And then, um, you know, in the late 90s, there was a, a task force called the McKay Task Force that was doing an evaluation of the financial system. And they came up with a, um, you know, a report that said consumers weren't well uh, represented. There was an imbalance of power in the financial services sector. So too much power with the financial institutions, not enough with consumers. So what what came into being was a brand new organization called the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. And so I applied uh, when the organization was, um, you know, first came to be. And, wow, and right was, from the beginning. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, one of the first consumer education officers here at FCAC, and I've been here for 16 years. Wow, that's awesome. And so you started, uh, and your your job was focusing on uh, financial education. Always. So yeah, when I first came to the agency, I was responsible for analyzing consumer inquiries and complaints and figuring out, you know, what really, we're the window to consumers, right? So it's analyzing what are consumers' issues? What are they saying? Um, what, are, what are their concerns? And then developing the web content to help in increase people's awareness about their rights, uh, you know, that we oversee uh, about different products and services. So yeah, I was responsible for developing uh, web content to help 
people and better understand money. So throughout the my first years here, it was really about that uh, um, developing information, analyzing what what the issues were, and and um, throughout the years, I I you know increased responsibilities. I became the director of the financial literacy and consumer education program in 2008 uh, when FCAC got a new legislative mandate to um, really strengthen we call financial literacy strengthening the knowledge the skills and the confidence to help people make responsible financial decisions so at that time we got some funding from government to develop programs for youth uh, that was our initial target audience in 2008 so we did develop a program called the city that is still continues to be used by teachers all across Canada. So it's a very com comprehensive program to help kids who are around the age of 15, 16, learn about money from um, from a, a fun and engaging way. And they learn and, it in, uh, a, in a specific class in high school? Yeah, so we're really fortunate in Canada. Since 2008, when that program was first launched till today, all provinces and territories in Canada teach financial literacy to a certain extent. At the time this program was first launched, we worked with British Columbia Securities Commission because they were the only province that had a financial literacy program embedded in their curriculum, and that was geared towards grade 10 kids. Well, now today, all provinces and territories are teaching financial literacy to a certain extent. So, for example, in Ontario, grades 4 to grade 12 have had financial literacy embedded in their curriculum since 2012. But this year, the Minister of Education announced a brand new program starting in September 2018 okay. that um, career and civics, a portion of that's going to be financial literacy okay. in Quebec. Uh, starting September 2017, all kids before they leave their secondary education have to take a mandatory financial literacy course. So oh, that's it's so very, great! Very yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, you know, do you have a do you have an idea of when the term financial literacy actually started to be used widely? Yeah, the the definition of uh, financial literacy was first developed in 2005 okay. uh, internationally by the Organization for Economic cooperation and development. And that's, I guess that's just from the observation that our, our studies are, you know, in terms of things like the FCAC that were built to analyze and determine, well, what's the conclusion? People are less financially literate than we might like. Yeah, there's, uh, there was great recognition that people really needed to better understand the complexity uh, and, and the specific products and services, but more broadly, even the basics of budgeting, you know, once you know the where your money is coming in and where the money is going out, you can feel a little bit more comfortable and confident and in control of your money. Absolutely. And, uh, and then you can see how you can pay down debt, you can make spending decisions that change uh, where you're spending your money. And so you can help pay down debt and increase your savings. It's the biggest thing that I run into uh, as a personal finance coach is that people just don't know how much they make and how much they spend. And and it's it seems like such a basic thing, right? But if you don't know that stuff, you're you're guessing at investments, uh, the amount of money that you have left over and whether you can actually afford something. Yeah, that's you know, the first step is definitely tracking your expenses and most people and I would hazard to say all people would be surprised at where does their money go in a day? people forget about that coffee they paid for in the morning or, oh, I'll just, you know, 
by that little thing, but it all adds up, right? And so if you're tracking your expenses for a certain period of time, you can have a better sense of where the money's going. And then again, you make the decision yourself about whether or not you like your spending habits. And if you can make some changes and pay down debt, all the better. Yeah, absolutely. And so in terms of uh, other ways people are learning, I'm, I'm hearing about this financial wellness in the workplace thing that's happening because I'll be attending the conference in a couple of weeks in Toronto. Terrific. It's actually a conference board of Canada conference okay, and yeah. FC will be one of the sponsors. And we are really, really trying to promote workplace financial literacy because like the school system mm-hmm. that we just talked about, workplace is a great way to reach adults. It's, school, you know? it's like school for the, uh, the adults, right? It's exactly. the same thing, sort of. And you know, what we're learning, there's a growing body of uh, evidence that shows uh, a link between financial stress and health of employees. Hmm. Um, and that extends to people are uh, 42% of Canadians say that financial stress is their greatest stress. Wow. And that leads other health issues, but it also affects the workplace. And what the evidence shows is that employees are absent more, uh, they're less productive, they're distracted if they feel financial stress. And so the idea of bringing financial literacy programs into the workplace is sort of a win-win for both the employer and the employee, because the employee is learning where they're already at, which we learn through our consultations is super important for adults. We're all very busy people. So by bringing a financial literacy program into the workplace, a lunch and learn, you're already in the workplace, being supported by your employer to do this learning is is another thing that's really important. But people getting that information will be less stressed, they'll be more productive, they'll be more present, if you will, at the workplace. And then, of course, there's the win for the employer. They have a a more productive workplace and a happier uh, workforce. So instead of just focusing on, you know, health benefits or or chiropractic or massage or anything, uh, businesses are are seeing the value, I guess, through your your research, that uh, it's actually worth it. It's like trying to convince the companies in the 70s uh, to have any kind of social plan. Yeah, exactly. We're really uh, emphasizing the importance of financial well-being and, um, you know, the the mental health within the workplace. Again, we're, you know, we're seeing that people are not sleeping well. Their their um, blood pressure has increased because of financial stress. So the, the direct link between health, mental health, and financial well-being is very, very close. And so it, it's as people, organizations are creating strategies for, um, for the workplace, we want financial well-being to be part of that. I like that you said mental health because, as you uh, might know, that's my background is in addiction, uh, in recovery, and attention deficit disorder is my mental uh, disorder, still is. Uh, I'm just medicated for it. I was leading a kind of a dual life uh, at, at one point, you know, going to, to work in the day and everything was normal, and then at night I had uh, an addiction. And I think, you know, maybe something like this would have helped me or maybe given me the resource uh, that I needed earlier about uh, filing a consumer proposal or bankruptcy, the, 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 the tools that I ended up using to sort of crawl my way out. Yeah, I think, I mean, you're very brave to come public with, with the issues that you've had. And I 
totally give you credit for that and congratulations for recovery and raising awareness because we really do see that broadly you know people challenged with mental health issues it's becoming a much much better conversation now it's much more accepted organizations like federal government have a, a clear focus on mental health and where the financial health comes into play is it there's a direct link so again in federal government part of our mental health um Uh, strategy is now including FCC's financial literacy program. We are, our content sits in the, uh, in the mental health portal. It's a a, a portal that's created uh, for all employees within federal government because there is such a correlation. It's so, it's so likely that a mental health issue will cause some kind of financial problem, right? Because what, what happens is you, you cope in some way and you don't, uh, have the ability, you know, uh, whatever mental health issue it is, you may turn to addiction, but it's causing you uh, stress in your life. And that usually leads to either overspending or spending on the problem that you have. That's right. And the, the amazing thing is there are so many more organizations that can help now than ever before. Um, people are now talking about this link between mental health and financial well-being. So it's it shouldn't hopefully be such a taboo to talk to your uh, employee benefits program, for example, you know, about how can I, how can I get some help? We're actually working across a bunch of organizations on a new workplace working group. And we have HR professionals on there. We have representatives from the employee benefits plans, like the, the life and health insurance organizations that offer these programs like the Sun Lifes, the Manual Lifes, Great West Lifes, for example, Canadian Payroll Association, the organization that that helps over 200, I believe, organizations run their payroll systems, charter professional accountants. So we're working across different industries that are all coming together to develop and deliver workplace financial literacy programs um, so that employees know where to turn to to get that help that they need. Well, that sounds fantastic. I was really pleasantly surprised to find out all the things that I did, uh, you know, when I was reading. To be completely honest, I didn't know that you existed. Uh, I'm, I was sure that there was somebody leading, you know, but I didn't know that, that there was a, a, a financial literacy leader appointed. And, and it's, a, it's a, a great thing to me to, to learn about this. And I, I hope we can, uh, we can keep in touch as you go through your Uh, the mandate and and all of the things that you've been tasked to do. Oh, thank you so much. It's a wonderful opportunity. And uh, I've loved the opportunity to share what I do, but also learn a little bit more about what you do. And uh, again, you know, I encourage all your listeners to to contact FCAC, to come to our website, canada.ca slash money, learn a little bit more. And uh, we're really here to help. And thank you so much for the opportunity, Bo. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks so much, Jane. Thank you. A common theme at the conference and in the discussion with Jane is the importance of overall wellness. Whether you go through what I did and have mental health issues that caused addiction, which led to financial problems, or whether you have unanticipated financial issues, which in turn may cause mental health issues, we now understand that one can't be addressed without looking at the others. And though we didn't focus on it, physical wellness, including healthy eating habits, play a huge part in overall wellness. I would like to thank Jane and Louie for taking the time to share their stories and insight. It's comforting to know that there are people out there who are looking out for us and trying to improve the overall well-being of Canadians. 
Next week on the Personal Finance Show, Lindsay and Graham Plum from Moolah Financial Coaches and Advisors join me. I had a really fun chat with Lindsay and Graham and how they're helping Canadians become unstoppable, which is now my favorite word. If you enjoy listening to the Personal Finance Show, please show your support by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. No time for a review? Just leave me a star rating. It takes two seconds. InvestWisely.ca is where you can find all the show notes and links and, of course, all of my blog posts. I'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to send me an email at bow at investwisely.ca.